This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. As we bear witness to the ongoing war in Ukraine, we are outraged. We may feel helpless. And uh, I know that many of us are wondering, like myself, if there's any way that we can take real substantive action here. So this hour, I have invited on two of our friends to discuss the situation and to offer, offer up some guidance on how we as activists can best respond here. And first up is Chris Franco. He's an Afghanistan combat veteran, and he is the Pacific Northwest Chapter Director of the Truman National Security Project. He's also a very dear friend. Chris, how are you, man? I'm doing well, brother. Appreciate you having me on. Pleasure as always. It, it is a pleasure. And, you know, I was just reflecting before we started. It's just like you, you seem to get booked during times of, of crisis and bad news. And I guess that's just kind of part of the gig working with Truman. But uh, yeah, so I, I really do appreciate you being here. And, you know, this episode is going to be all about how people can help. But, you know, given your experience as an Afghanistan combat veteran, I just want to kind of start there and just ask you, what are some of the things that you've been thinking about as you watch this whole horrific invasion invasion work into, a, a, you know, its fourth week now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a uh, a tough and complex question, but um, certainly thinking a lot about just the the horrifically unjust and brutal war that this is for the Ukrainian people. Um, I mean, as a as a veteran uh, of our war in Afghanistan, I've seen combat, but not uh, at the scale and brutality that we're we're seeing right now unfolding in in Ukraine. Um, definitely thinking a lot about. Um, the the men and women that I served with, and you know what this war may mean for them uh, and many military families uh, throughout our country and throughout the world, especially those that are currently stationed in in Europe. Um, I mean, what's happening right now is just it's tragic and it's unnecessary, uh, it's unjust and unprovoked, and um, I just I can't imagine. I mean, there's an element of me that you know just personally wonders if this continues to escalate, you know, does this, you know, is there a possibility of, of, of getting back in into service and, you know, leaving this life that we've, uh, we've created together after uh, our time in service. And then uh, certainly looking at and thinking a lot about what this means here at home, you know, yeah. what impacts uh, to our own country, to the rest of the world, uh, to the Ukrainian people as this continues to uh, to escalate and, you know, how this, this war has fundamentally changed the world. Uh, there's yeah. there's so much to unpack. Well, I, you know, I'll just ask you to go a little bit further down that path because this is, is reflective of the kinds of conversations that you and I have all the time. I mean, how are you thinking about this specifically in the context of what is now very apparently a global battle between authoritarianism and democracy, and particularly the way that that plays out here in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean that's that's a, that's exactly what this is. Um, I mean, this is bigger than Ukraine. This is bigger than NATO, as um, as Putin tries to claim. This is a battle between democracy and authoritarianism, and um, we would be fooling ourselves if we thought that that battle wasn't here at home. Um, I mean, we have a number of threats uh, ongoing to voting rights, to our democratic institutions, um, just our, our elections in general, and um, really, Ukraine is the the current epicenter of of this fight between democracy and authoritarianism. And um, I, I sure hope that what we're seeing is is waking people up uh, to what is unfolding and, and, you know, what is facing much of the world right now uh, as, as the world grapples with these two very different um, ways to wield power and uh, 
govern and um, it's it's upon us. It's just an enormous conversation and one that I, I suspect that you and I will have uh, probably in some form or another as, as all of this uh, unfolds. Um, but as I mentioned, I've, I've asked you here to talk about some action steps. And, you know, you are the now the Pacific Northwest Chapter Director for uh, Truman National Security Project. So um, and I'll just mention for people who may not be familiar, Truman is a community of national security experts. It advocates for and, and drives policy, among a number of other things. I'll just ask you just just kind of, we'll talk specifics, but just, uh, you know, top notes. What are some of the things that Truman has been doing in response to the war? Yeah, I, I mean, a ton. Uh, we've got folks in Truman that are, are deeply involved with this ongoing crisis as a part of, uh, you know, our Department of State. We've got folks that are on the ground in, in Ukraine right now. We've got folks that are leading nonprofit organizations and assisting with refugee resettlement efforts. Um, I mean, we have folks here uh, locally. We've got folks uh, throughout the country that are, are partnering uh, with our government as you know private sector leaders and others uh, in our nonprofit sector to to really uh, figure out the, the best ways that we can aid uh, the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian military, um, you know bolster our own uh, defenses at home with respect to cybersecurity and, and you know leaning into whatever we can to assist with this unfolding humanitarian crisis. And I mean, we've got folks in very prominent positions um, working on this uh, in very intimate ways. So it's, it's, uh, it's good to see the Truman community come together yet again. Um, mm -hmm. It certainly did so during the Afghan evacuation and resettlement efforts. And, and that remains true with this, uh, this war in, in Europe, but uh, very proud of the Truman community and stepping up uh, to help in whatever ways that, that we can. Well, I mean, it's reassuring to know that so many great minds are at work uh, on this right now. And one of the things that Truman has done is put together a list of recommended actions for people like me and people who are watching and listening uh, to the program here. So I want to go through a few of those. So the first recommendation is to push our elected officials on certain things. What are some of the things that you think local and municipal government should be doing in response? Yeah, appreciate this question. Um, I'm going to kind of hit it at a broad level, but there are some things that I think our elected officials really need to be uh, considering right now. Uh, one, you know, establishing stronger communication ties and just infrastructure in general with state and federal agencies, uh, as well as one another. Uh, this situation that's unfolding right now in Ukraine and Europe is changing daily. Uh, it will be incredibly important uh, for governments to be talking with one another and coordinating efforts. Um, <laughs> To, to keep people, businesses, resources, and critical infrastructure uh, safe here at home and to the extent we can uh, in Ukraine and, and elsewhere in Europe, uh, especially as this war uh, potentially continues to, uh, to escalate. Um, we have plenty of work to be doing at the local and municipal level, uh, not to mention the state and federal, to bolster uh, our cybersecurity defenses uh, and really updating our continuity of operations plans as, as nerdy as that may sound it's a very real plan and thing that you know our governments need to dust off uh, we did so with covid uh, but now it's time to really take a look at the threats um, that are, are are facing our, our communities uh, as a result of this this war and, and updating those um, i think we really need to have elected officials start thinking about how they're going to uh, be communicating effectively and in multiple languages uh, with the public about uh, the ways that this war may impact us here at home. 
the threats that exist uh, and ways that folks can help uh, and the, the extent that we can. Uh, I mean, in times of crisis, people want and need to know what's going on. Um, I think another fundamental thing that we, we need our elected officials to really do is, is really start thinking about how they're going to be protecting our residents um, from hate crimes and violence uh, as tensions continue to rise. Uh, I mean, I imagine, you know, Russian and Chinese Americans will be especially at risk. Um, I mean, we've seen massive spikes in, in anti-Asian hate and violence due to the rhetoric of many GOP leaders as a result of the pandemic. And um, I, I would have to imagine that um, we will continue to see a, a spike in, in similar incidents of hate and violence against uh, various communities impacted or involved in, um, perceived to be involved with, with this ongoing war. And then lastly, uh, our, our governments uh, would be really wise to, to really start planning how they would like to resource and structure themselves to, again, you know, to safeguard people, businesses, resources, and critical infrastructure in, this, in the event that this war continues to, uh, to escalate. Uh, inflation is going to continue to remain a challenge. Gas prices are likely to remain uh, high, and yeah. your cyber attacks may become very disruptive. Uh, to everyday life and our elected officials uh, they need to have a plan uh, to be able to help provide relief, keep people informed and, and mitigate the, the impacts of uh, this war here at home. And it's, it's quite the undertaking that folks need to start planning now. All fantastic advice and all very forward looking. And, you know, you, you mentioned thinking about messaging uh, from our leaders. We have a role to play in that, too. And and everybody with a social media account has a platform at this point. Uh, and I, I really don't think that that has been lost on anybody who is, is you know, some, somebody who watches this show on a regular basis. We've been basically drilling this into people's heads uh, since the very beginning of the year. So this is no exception, right? Good yeah. social media messaging is absolutely crucial right now, particularly, as you say, around inflation, energy price hikes, things like that. How would you like to see people messaging right now? Yeah. Oh, gosh, there's so much the message. I mean, first and foremost, I, I think one of the biggest things that we need to just hit outright is that this is an unprovoked and unjust war of Putin's choosing, period. Um, this is not the U.S. or NATO's fault, and it's certainly not Ukraine's fault. Uh, the victim blaming that's going on, even within our own communities, is concerning and only helps to, to justify the actions of, of Putin and others that are, are cheering this, uh, this war on. Um, this... This is a moment where we need to be real sober about, you know, kind of going back to your, your, your comment, and your question about, you know, this battle between democracy and authoritarianism. That is what this is. Um, and Ukraine is, again, the, the current epicenter of this. Uh, but this battle is raging everywhere and, and certainly battling uh, or here at home. Um, we need to recognize that authoritarianism is a grave threat to global security and democracy around the world. Uh, I mean, Americans have a lot to learn from, from the courage and conviction of Ukrainians uh, in the fight to determine their own path and, and future. And uh, Americans need to wake up and fight for voting rights before we find ourselves needing to fight like the Ukrainians are fighting right now. I mean, this, this is our moment to get ahead of this uh, and to recognize the power and importance of, of democracy in our ability as we the people to continue to uh to carve our own path forward yeah. um, we need to recognize that it has only been one month uh since the full and uh, full-scale invasion 
of Ukraine. And we don't know uh, what this war is going to look like, you know, months from now or, or even years from now. Uh, but we must remain vigilant and dedicated to democracy here at home, uh, especially as the leader of the free world. I mean, we we have got to do everything in our power right now to uh, maintain and strengthen our democracy and fight back against the GOP's coordinated efforts to dismantle and you know disrupt our democracy and the, the rights of folks here at home. Um, and it's critical to doing that. Like we have to, have to, have to, have to hold the House and Senate here at the state level and at the federal level. And then the White House and the governor's mansion in, in 2024. I mean, this may feel like it's, it's, it's far off, it's out there, uh, but it's not. Uh, it, it's a conventional fight in Ukraine right now. Um, but this fight between democracy and authoritarianism is here at home. Um, I mean, you can see some of the things coming out of uh, senators' mouths right now in the uh, the hearing <laughs> going on. A lot right. of grandstanding going on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because <laughs> what else are they going to do? You know, I, I I love what you're 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 saying about this, and I think this is all exactly right in the way that you're framing it. I mean, this is what Anat Shankar Asario, the messaging expert, talks about. It's the three V's. It's basically you have the the values, which is of course we are fighting for democracy against authoritarianism. Our uh, our, our villain, of course, is not just Putin, but it's the MAGA right in this country yep. as well. And then of course the vision is that we you know. We absolutely need to do everything that we need to do that is going to be required uh, for democracy to prevail. So, yeah. So, again, social messaging couldn't be more crucial right now. Another thing that Truman is recommending is that people encourage employers to cut ties with Russia and its enablers. We know we've seen a, a, just a ton of, of these, uh, you know, a lot of uh, corporations pulling out of Russia right now. I wonder if there are any Washington based brands that we should be aware of. Yeah, I think, I mean, overall, we're doing we're doing all right as a state. Uh, I mean, folks like Boeing, Amazon, Microsoft, Nintendo, Alaska Airlines and Expedia have suspended many of their operations with Russia. Uh, uh, Deutsche Telekom, IT, which is the owner of T-Mobile here in our area, uh, is still uh, providing services in, in Russia. Uh, they've scaled back but have not stopped uh, mm. operations in Russia. So that's, uh, I think, an area that we can continue to, to pressure folks on. Um, and then I think from an agricultural perspective is, you know, we're a very agricultural heavy, uh, state that, um, I, I think we're, we've basically stopped, uh, much of our exports and it's not something I think we, we need to worry about to be quite honest on, on that end. It's something that I know is an evolving issue and something we'll be keeping an eye on here uh, because it's certainly, a, a, you know, an arrow in the quiver. You know, we have our political approaches and we certainly have our economic approaches to this as well. Um, then the next item on the list uh, has to do with refugees. And mm-hmm. this is something we're going to be talking in the next segment about with Tamina Watson, who is a, an immigration attorney. But what are just very briefly from what Truman has been looking at? Well, you can tell us about the status of refugee resettlement here in the U.S. and, and here in Washington. Washington state specifically? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, uh, most of the refugees are, are staying in Europe right now. We've had very few folks from uh, Ukraine that have made their way to the, uh, to the U.S. as of late. Um, but there are efforts right now going on, even locally. Um, I mean, we secure, I believe, uh, with the help of the Washington state legislature and, and an effort led by uh, Anila Afsali and Mapsi Men, uh, we're able to secure 
$28.4 million uh, to assist with, uh, you know, refugees and, and those organizations that uh, to support them. And, and specifically, uh, just over $1.7 million um, to, to help with both uh, our Afghan refugees and Ukrainian refugees that are making their way here to uh, to Washington State. But uh, definitely an ongoing effort uh, at the federal level and even at the state level to, to be able to expedite um, uh, the ability for folks to get here safely and not be worried about deportation um, as these threats to themselves and, and you know their country remain uh, to the foreseeable future. But we're, we're actually doing a pretty solid job here as Washington State and um, certainly efforts underway at the federal level. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Uh, I was extremely happy to see uh, the the money apportioned uh, through Representative Milantai's budget request there. Um, and speaking of money, that's something that we can always do. Um, I know that that has played a huge role uh, in in helping out the, the Ukrainian people at the government level, but even at the individual level. I know that people are, for example, renting uh, Airbnbs in cities like mm-hmm. Kiev, obviously not going, but just so that the money will go to the owners. What are some of the organizations that we can donate to that Truman recommends? Recommends. Yeah, I, I'm going to just make this uh, an easy button. Uh, I would direct everybody to helpsaveukraine.com. Uh, I mean, that's something that we've been consistently pointing people to, uh, to include our own members. And there are a multitude of different organizations uh, listed there that you can uh, help directly in a number of different ways that you can be uh, guided in providing aid to the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian government, military, uh, you name it. Um, but the resources in, in that uh, that website are, are the best place to go to yeah. and just kind of figure out the the ways that you uh, you can and would like to help out as this uh, as this war continues to to progress. Everything that we just talked about in terms of the bullet points is all found at uh, HelpSaveUkraine.com. And of course, that'll be available if you need it in the show notes. Chris Franco, as always, my brother, I, I just I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you and all the work you do. Thank you. Next up is our friend Tamina Watson. She is founding attorney of Watson Immigration Law in Seattle, where she practices U.S. immigration law focusing on business immigration. And we've invited her on to talk about the status of Ukrainian refugees who are coming to the U.S. Hello, Tamina. How are you? Hi, Stefan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. It's always a pleasure to have you. Um, You know, you recently published a couple of articles, one of which was about the changes that you would like to see to immigration laws that could help Ukrainian refugees who are coming to the U.S., which I want to talk about in a moment. But I know that you're currently working with a Ukrainian refugee and his family. I wonder if you just tell us a little bit briefly about him and his family and how they managed to, to get to the U.S. Yes. Well, thank you so much for asking this question. I think my client is um, a unique one because this family arrived in the U.S. soon after the invasion began. And when he arrived with his family, the Customs and Border Protection folks were actually rather surprised because they were not expecting to see uh, Ukrainians come over so quickly. This was a family, mom, dad and two minor children. They already had tourist visas in their passports, but one of the family members did not. And this was an elderly elderly mother. So they had to make a very difficult decision to leave the mother behind. Mm. Um, Tourist visas require a person to have non-immigrant intent, which means you are here temporarily, you're going to leave after your temporary visit is done, you have uh, evidence to show you have funds for yourself, you have a home back 
back wherever you your home is right. and you have ties back home and because it was so new at the time and they had come to the US in the past they had a record to show that their visit was temporary and for all intents and purposes it still likely is temporary we really don't know one of the things that people have to understand especially when anti-immigrant you know conversations happen is that a lot of refugees just want to have refuge and when the time goes by, they want to go back to their homes to build their lives back. And this situation is no different. But, you know, as um, circumstances unfold, what you can do back home is also um, questionable. So everything is up in the air. And at the time, TPS was not an option for them. And so we were thinking about how do we get mother over? But these people, as well as every other person in America who has family members in Ukraine, are struggling with the same issue. How do we bring somebody over to the U.S.? But as TPS became an option, and, you know, I want to make sure that the administration receives our gratitude for acting so quickly on this issue, um, this family, while initially wanted to file for TPS, they're sort of yeah. in, a, in, a, in a position wondering what is best for their family as a whole. So we're still going through that decision-making process, and there's a little bit of time to, to make that decision. But in general... Well, if I may, I just jump in very quickly, because I do want to ask about TPS. That's uh, temporary protected status. Uh, you said that your client and his family have uh, what is called a tourist visa or a B1, B2, uh, which is a potential option. Can you tell us a little more about TPS for those who are currently here but do not have the, the temporary uh, tourist visa? And also, do we know how many people are in the U.S. right now? There are about 30,000 uh, Ukrainian nationals in the United States. That's from various news reports, um, at least as of two weeks ago. And Temporary protected status is something that is all already on the law, on, on the books and the statutes. And it's done under several considerations, whether the country has had a natural disaster, whether the country has had, um, you know, civil unrest. Uh, so the government has to go through various considerations to see whether the citizens of that country who are now in the U.S. have reasons to stay here because they cannot go back. But of and course, of in course, this situation, the the obstacle ultimately is, is that it's it really only applies for people who are already in the United States, correct? That is correct. So it is one prong of the problem solved. It is not everything. But for those who are in the U.S., it is absolutely a lifeline. Sure. They would have to file for a TPS application, and it is only for 18 months. That application may take a long time to be approved. But whenever it is approved, the people who are here will have the opportunity to have work permission. And that is key, because how does a family survive? Depending, yes, especially if they're going to stay here for any, any length of time. So you also call for something that is called a special humanitarian parole program. This uh, is something that uh, a lot of people I don't think are familiar with. I was not until uh, I read your article, but apparently the United States did this for Cuba, did it for Haiti in the past, other countries. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it might work for Ukrainians? Yes. So the parole 
program is something different from humanitarian parole itself. Humanitarian paroles are individual applications that are filed by either a US citizen or a green card holder for somebody outside the country. What we saw in, in the Afghan national humanitarian crisis situation is that the government received 40,000 applications within a, a few months span, whereas normally they get 2,000 in a year. We have also seen a very high rate of denials in these individual applications. So what we learned from this experience is that individual applications are not sufficient. What we want to push for is a program that um, has parameters around it, and it could be you're a Ukrainian and you have now, you know, been you've left your country um, and, and there could be others like that. Um, that could be a program that the administration can set up. And it, there are, you know, precedents, as you mentioned, for Cuba and others. Um, it, it is something that is reachable and it wouldn't necessarily need Congress to, to work on that. And that's the key, that you need a solution that is efficient and fast to implement and get the people who want to be in the U.S. to get here. Exactly right. I mean, this is really sort of a time is of the essence kind of uh, issue here. And I should stress, of course, that when we use the language of parole and parolee, we are not talking about anything criminal. This is just specific to the program itself. Um, so you're talking about, you know, the ways in which this can work politically. And I'll just ask you, because, of course, you know, this this show goes out to a number of activists who are more than willing to do what it takes to advocate for the sorts of things that you're talking about. What kinds of things would you like to see us pushing for with our elected officials? Well, I do think that all of these people, the 30,000 people who are here, and it would apply to others, um, these people may not be able to even apply because they don't know how. You know, it's a technical process. So there should be some legal fees available and opportunities available for these people to actually be able to apply. Maybe there should be ways to waive the fees that are necessary too. But I do think that there needs to be a, a special parole program, one of the things that your listeners not, might be thinking about, what about refugees? What about the refugee program? The trouble with the refugee program is it takes about four to five plus years for somebody to get through the process, and that is not an expeditious pathway. Can so I just I actually pause you for just a second there? Because this is a question that comes up an awful lot. Why does it take so long when obviously, as I said, time is of the essence. People are dying. Why does the refugee program take so long, do you think? It's because there are multiple steps that happen with different agencies, and there's a very um, heavy vetting process. And each of these steps that happen from the agencies to UNHCR and the recommendations, all of these things take years. And there are already refugees in the pipeline. So when you are adding new people to it, you're really at the back of the line. So the refugee, while it is an important program, the other thing to remember is the past administration didn't take any refugees right. into the U.S. So that number needs to be built up, too. It is an important program and we need to continue to do that. But specifically for the Ukrainian nationals who want to come here, who need to come here, um, we should be pushing for options where a, a large number of people could come in quickly. 
And indeed, that's what we're looking at right now. It's my understanding that uh, nearly four million people have already left Ukraine as refugees. Um, would it, you know, how many, in your estimation, would it make sense for the United States to bring in, understanding that, of course, geography and the ocean and you know, all that play a role in this? How would you ideally see that play out? Do you know, I think what I've learned is and heard is, is a lot of people that are w within neighboring countries are hoping to go back home. So of those 4 million, I'm not quite sure how many want to be here, but I think the administration needs to think about a large number. You know, if you think about the way um, these visa applications work, every single person normally has to go through several steps of processing. And the system that we have is broken. So while we want a lot of people here and we want to save lives, we also have to think about a system that has been so broken, essentially trampled on, that this administration is trying to revive. But they are, and it's not just the refugee process, the humanitarian process, every single aspect of immigration is broken. And so they're dealing with this. So it's not just a matter of how many do we want, what is feasible. And without knowing what the administration is capable, I couldn't answer that question. But what my heart wants, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are looking to see, is how do we bring as many as we can as efficiently and practically, practically as possible? Well, you are right on the front lines of all of this. And of course, I think it goes without saying that everybody really appreciates the work that you do on behalf of, of you know, immigrants and, and refugees. I also understand, and I, I want to bring this up so that you can tell people about it. You have a, a, a wonderful podcast that uh, people uh, who watch this show and listen to the show may be aware of, but you have a new one that you're launching, right? Yes, thank you so much for asking about that. I had written a book in 2015 called The Startup Visa, and a second edition came out in July, and it just sort of unfolded from one thing to another that I have a podcast that's a derivative from the book called The Startup Visa. It is a, a podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners and investors to understand what they need to do to make a case um, successful. And it's on Apple Podcast and other places where people get their podcasts. We will have information for that in the show notes for this show. Uh, Tamina Watson, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. The email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the website is indivisiblepodcast.org. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell and as always my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>